ready for the interview And if you get a cue live on the laptop Watch what I'm gonna do Welcome to the show Let them know we got a point of view Hey, yo, let's have a combo Say what you feel, be real That's the motto Real talk, pronto Doctor D, PhD, hit the intro Hold up, wait Gotta be social Network global A home for the locals Gotta be social Network global A home for the locals Awesome. Brooke, I'm so pumped to have you here. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I came across your profile and I was like, I have to talk to this person. <laughs> I just got to learn what's going on in Brooke's world and get pumped up about it. <laughs> you know? Fabulous. <laughs> yeah. Well, one, like uh, I'm sure like many people say like you were on Chopped, right? And, uh, you know, it's a big show that my family and I watch like all the time. And I was like, wait a minute, I've seen her on one of these episodes. Was it the chocolate one? Or I was like, That's a good memory. It was the chocolate one. Yeah, yeah. I was like, wait a minute. That's definitely her on that one there. But uh, I would love to learn about your background related to cooking. And I know I think there's also a larger aspect about antidepressants, I believe, or so. Yes, that and is correct. We'll get into that. But let's, let's start from the beginning about kind of your love of cooking and how that came to you. You, you know, I think my, my cooking life is, uh, came, came about out of necessity more mm. than anything. Um, and really my whole life, it's kind of just been something that became necessity. So I, uh, I, I came from, you know, small family. It's just me and my mom and my dad. My dad's definition of dinner was a can of chili and a packet <laughs> of saltines. Uh, <laughs> if he warmed it up, that was impressive. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> My mom is one of these people who, if she could take a pill for the rest of her life and never have to eat again, she would. She finds eating terribly inconvenient. Mm. And so there was just this, you know, kind of, I, I mean, like the opposite of culture around food in my house. It was just like yeah. a means to an end. People ate on the go. Uh, if we ate together, usually my parents talked about business. It wasn't really, you know, anything that there was, there was no memories really built around this, but uh, for me, I, I had more interest in it, I think just from a child. And when I, I don't know, maybe I was about, well, the other aspect of this as well is that my mom only let me watch uh, a half hour of TV a day growing up unless it was educational. Hmm. And the two things that were considered educational were cooking channel and the weather channel. So <laughs> I watched a lot of documentaries about lightning. And I also okay. watched a lot of, you know, Julia Child and Two Fat Ladies and these, you know, <laughs> old, early 80s, 90s cooking shows wow. uh, because I got around it. So I think from there, I started to decide like, okay, let me start cooking things myself because I certainly wasn't getting, you know, a new uh, array of culinary cuisine presented to me at dinner every night. And so really by the time I was able to drive and could drive myself to the grocery store, I started to experiment and, you know, then I realized that food, when you bring people food, they like you better. And so that was a easy way to get over being kind of introverted and, you know, entering into new friend groups is bringing cookies or whatnot. And uh, I'm also highly competitive. So I wanted to make the best cookie. And so from there, nice. it just kind of evolved. And I went to uh, undergrad for a history degree at Middlebury College. But after I graduated, I kind of looked at my life and really didn't know what to do and said, well, the only thing that I've had a consistent interest in my whole life has been cooking. Everything else has fallen by the wayside at some point. And so I went to culinary school and then the economy crashed. So I 
was working as a cook and then all I could do was keep working as a cook and yeah. that's kind of how the necessity part came in it's like I happened to be doing this at a certain point in my life and in the world and uh that just you know you do something long enough that becomes what you do and so that's what I did and now I've worked in all aspects of the industry and uh luckily now I feel pretty grateful that I get to do most of my work from home I do recipe development food writing um you know consumer packaged good development so kind of take all the restaurant knowledge and apply it to a less stressful day-to-day life and career yeah and you know what I always I always feel like um I've talked to so many chefs throughout my life and I always feel like working in a restaurant as a chef seems pretty stressful actually you know like I get that constant feeling of like there's just so much stress is that did you experience that at all or is that like not part of it for you I mean I'm I don't have a lot of positive memories from working in a restaurant environment. I loved the learning, mm. but for me, ultimately, you know, you know, you, maybe you get to do something new here and there and you get to learn new techniques here and there, but then it comes down to just repeating the same dish hundreds of times yeah. over really long shifts over and over. Um, I think the adrenaline rush that you get in a kitchen is probably uh, quite unique. I would compare it maybe only to an emergency room doctor because there's kind of not really another profession that I can think of where you have random, random pushes of adrenaline that force you to focus for extremely long periods of time. Like, you know, a a dinner rush can last two hours. That's two hours of basically not being able to make a mistake. And because a mistake could either mean, I mean, we're not talking life or death here, but a mistake could mean, I mean, I've cut myself really badly in the middle of service that screws up the whole kitchen. If one person does that, you know, you've got cranky diners upstairs, you've got the waitstaff yelling at you, you've got the executive chef, you know, yelling at you, you've got wrong orders sent out that gets sent back. And it's, it's just a, it's just a microcosm that you just really don't want to screw up in. And so, because sometimes 40 people show up, you just have these bouts of adrenaline that are both random and consistent. You know, every shift is going to be kind of like that, but you don't know when, you don't know how long, and then you're there for 14 hours. So I can't really think of too many other professions that kind of force you to be in that level of intensity constantly. Yeah. And it doesn't seem sustainable to do that long-term. I mean, I feel like mentally, physically, emotionally, that that would be very difficult to maintain. You know, there are a lot of lifers in this industry. Uh, I am not one of them in the restaurant world. I, for me, it just wasn't the way I wanted to live my life. But for a lot of people, it's where they feel like they fit in. Mm. And they really like that, that, you know, adrenaline that happens. And, you know, it's very much a job you don't take home at all. And Mm. I think there's something little masochistic about it that I think every chef (laughs) I've ever met has and there's something really primal about it that I think can be very attractive to a lot of people you know just you kind of feel like a modern day hunter gatherer Mm. in a a kitchen it's not glamorous for the most part and that is attractive in a lot of ways how do you feel like the kind of the culture of cooking is when you're actually in the thick of it you know working in a restaurant or your private chef versus what is portrayed on TV. Is there a big difference in that that you feel? It depends on what TV we're talking about. Uh, 
I mean, if you want to talk like most restaurant kitchens that are portrayed in a television or let's, let's be more honest, like a romantic comedy, it's yeah. almost never like that. Like it's just, <laughs> everyone's clean all the time and, yeah. and no one seems stressed out and everyone has a full set of eyelashes on and none of that happens in the kitchen because your eyelashes, you know, will burn. They will literally like mm. go into a hot oven. And if you have mascara on, they'll burn. So you don't, Typically, you don't want to wear too much makeup in the kitchen. Um, everyone's a lot sweatier in real life than right. the TV. Um, you know, that said, it also kind of depends on what's being portrayed. So Ratatouille is a really fabulous example of how yeah. kitchens work, but it's of high-end kitchens. It's not what a kitchen looks like if you're kind of, you know, a, like a greasy spoon type place or yeah. even just a 10-seater in a 600-square-foot place in Manhattan. That's not what they look like, but for your big Michelin star restaurants. So that's a great representative. Um, the movie Chef, I think was pretty yeah. accurate, but it's been a while and I saw it once, but, but I'd say anything like pre 2010 is probably a terrible representative. Like Monica mm. is a chef on friends, awful, awful. <laughs> not, not realistic at all. <laughs> no, no. Well, it's, I, I'm always interesting in kind of the disconnect or what's the reality of things because you know for people when they watch something that becomes the reality of that situation mm -hmm. unless they're inside of that situation yeah i you think know? people don't realize how brutal it is to work in those environments i mean you know try stand up try standing up for 14 hours a day in 100 or 95 or 100 degree heat like let me know how your body feels after that right now yeah. do that six days in a row and get paid 90 dollars a shift to do it do you still want to do that mm. <laughs> wow, me, you're bringing the reality <laughs> to this, I tell you. <laughs> well, and also that, like, speaking of TV, how did Chopped come into your life? And, you know, we'll, we'll get, dive a little bit deeper into that, but take me into, like, how that started for you. I was, I was living in New York at the time. I owned a bakery in New York, and I was, you know, we made, we made, boozy cupcakes at my bakery which were very uh, mm -hmm. very popular but ultimately for me I felt like a little bit of a like a robot of my own creation um I had you know once you created the recipes and the technique it was just kind of a lot of plug and play and yeah you know do the same thing every day so I was I was extremely bored uh in my own business and I happened to meet the casting director of Chopped at a uh at a party for my physical therapist of all things mm -hmm. and she was like you should apply. We're always looking for local females because CHOP doesn't pay for your travel. So local's always easier to get. And, you know, women in this industry, there's just fewer of us and they all, you know, it's harder to get, therefore it's harder to get women to show up um, and compete because there's just not as many of us to choose from. Yeah. So they really liked having women and lo local women. And uh, I kind of laughed at her. I was like, I haven't worked in a, you know, real kitchen and six years I've been at my bakery this whole time making cupcakes haven't touched a fish or any of that in a long time like why would you choose me <laughs> but I think she just sent me the application anyway and then I think I was you know maybe like home a little buzzed one night and I was just like yeah. sure let's apply that'll never <laughs> happen and then you know famous last words um from there they take you on an on-camera interview so you I mean well this is all like pre-covid so I don't know how they do yeah. it now but uh, they would have you on an on-camera interview where you you learn that it's television first, cooking second. At no point do they test your food. 
Wow. So is that like a really cunning person could perhaps weasel their way on there, never having, mm-hmm. you know, touched a stove before. Um, and then from there, you just get an email out of the blue. I mean, for me, the, I think I applied in October when we filmed in June. So it was rather long, but yeah. And then they show up and they do the whole like pre-package part where they show the person in their restaurant or whatnot. Yeah. And, then one day you just show up at 5am in Chelsea Piers in New York and uh, <laughs> hope you don't embarrass yourself. Is <laughs> <laughs> a pretty long day, the whole entire shoot. Yeah, it's all done in one day. So the, the better you do in the competition, the longer you're there. So I showed yeah. up at five. I didn't get home until around 11, I think, because Ooh. I won, you know, spoiler alert. Yes. But if you get chopped in the first round, you probably get home around 10 <laughs> in the morning. <laughs> in the morning <laughs> i mean that's pretty yeah i mean the difference in time is incredible wow mm-hmm. what yeah, is the um, what was what, what's what's surprising like for the viewers i'm sure maybe you've watched the show before you're on it maybe um and uh what was surprising about actually being on the show versus watching the show uh, well, so the most common question that people always ask is, is the chop clock real? Is there television uh-huh. time? And there, and the answer is it's totally real. And when mm-hmm. the clock goes off, you've got that exact time to make your dish. But for me, I, for me, I think the couple of surprising things were, um, I mean, I've, I had been on television sets before, so I understood that like, you don't feel like you're in a kitchen. You feel like you're on set. There's lights all around. There's people's yeah. all, there's people around. Um, Everyone has camera like cameraman on them constantly. Each of us had our own um, producer with us too. So the producer would ask you questions before and after, and they were kind of assigned to watch you and like create the story around you specifically. And then, um, but the, the kind of the couple things there that I think, you know, maybe the television magic does come into play is, uh, so there's, there's this one uh, shot that they have that's called chef staring at food mm-hmm. and this happens twice it happens at the end when everyone's done with their plates and the plates are out in front of you and so people you know stand there with their hips and stare at what they've done second time it happens when you get your basket and so you start opening up your basket and taking stuff out they you put you have to put your stuff in front of the basket so the camera can come along and get a shot of you putting it there or the, the ingredient itself And so what I realized pretty quickly is the chef staring at food aspect when you're undoing your basket is not part of the clock. So I realized that if I take longer to do this, I get more time to think and they can't start the Mm. clock. So I'm sitting there like looking in my basket, like pulling something out, looking at it. You know, I wasn't I wasn't doing it in a way that they were like, it's been 10 minutes, like kind of go. I mean, for all I knew I was taking maybe, you know, 20% 20% more time to do it. Yeah. But it was enough for me to just be like, what is this? And I'm looking at it <laughs> and I'm like kind of carefully putting it down in front of me and then maybe adjusting it a little bit. So it's in a nice line, you know, all this time I'm just eating up time to kind of run through <laughs> the reels in my head of yeah. trying to figure that out. Um, I don't know if other people have figured out that little trick, but I found that to be very useful because then you get, you know, probably in the end, three, four minutes while they're filming all this to, to really start thinking. Okay. And that three, four minutes makes a huge difference. Um, oh my gosh, the, yes. <laughs> the other kind of little quirky bit that I love too is that on, Ch- on Chopped, everyone is in a line. So there's four stations and you're randomly assigned a station and there's perks and benefits to each of those stations, mm. but you don't necessarily know it at the time. So 
I think uh, station one is the closest to the judges and station four is the closest to the pantry. So if you're in station one, the perk is that you're right near the judges. You can hear them talk and they are going to give tips because you see that on the show where yeah. they say like, oh, you know, you've got, you know, this plant, the seeds are seed poisonous. You have to remove them, right? Yeah. You don't know that. Well, that's a really great information. But the flip side of that is you are the farthest away from the pantry. And the only way that you can get to the pantry and the refrigerator is by running behind everybody. Yeah. So not only do you have to get past three scrambling people, but you're probably a good 15, 20 seconds of space because it's big from your station to the pantry. So you better be clear in what you're grabbing every time you go back there because you can't, you can't eat up 45 seconds, 10 times. It's four and a half minutes. You're not gonna you're gonna be screwed most definitely but the flip side here is now i don't know about the second or the third portion because i was in the fourth position so i was in the uh, closest to the pantry but furthest from the judges so the flip side there was i couldn't hear anything that the judges were saying at all if they were giving out tips i i, I was not able to hear them but the good news is I was right next to the pantry. So I had a lot more freedom. I didn't have to run behind anybody. I had more freedom to just pop back and forth and get what I needed, get what I needed uh, at my whim rather than having to plan ahead of time. So I, I really enjoy that little perk. I think either way you can get something out of your position, but uh, that does make a difference. Yeah. I mean, that makes, that makes so much sense. And I've watched this show so many times. And it, I was like, yeah, that def that definitely makes so much sense. I wondered how much you could hear from uh, the judges, but also like, how much interaction do you actually have with them? You know, less than you think, and like, I, the, judging itself takes a really long time. So uh, each dish has about a half hour of judging on it. So in round one, four dishes, you've got two hours of judging. It's really long. Hmm. And so on the one hand, you kind of feel like you do get to interact with them, but there's not really a lot of room for kind of back and forth questions. They're, you know, they are judging you as culinary professionals, but they're also judging you as a television judge. So sometimes they would say things like that just, like they would contradict themselves. Yeah. You know, like, like in, in, in one of my competitors dishes, I remember saying they really liked how they made it, like they deconstructed it so they could decide how much of the dressing they wanted to put on. And then I remember they got on my case about deconstructing something because they wanted me to tell them how to eat it. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just like, eh, you know, but you can't, you can't defend yourself and they know the situation yeah. you're in. So on the one hand, you spend kind of all day with them, but you don't actually get to talk to them as people. I never mm. got to shake their hand. Um, they all disappeared they get hair and makeup. We don't, you know, they yeah. look great. We look, we look ratchet. So. <laughs> uh, yeah. So there's really not a lot of interaction there. Well, even as the winner, do you, you don't get much interaction even, even at the end or beyond that? No, there's, you know, you get a little twirl and mm. maybe five minutes of celebratory filming. And then they whisk you off to film your exit interview, which is where they get all those talking heads from. So, yeah. uh, that interview for me was close to three hours long, I think, because we had to go over everything from the whole day. So they're all gone by then. Yeah. Wow. That's the other thing, the other, sorry, I'd interrupt. The other thing that I, I love telling people because I think it's like, well, it's either going to ruin reality TV for you forever or make it more interesting. Depends on who you are. Okay. But I always like to say, look out for what they call Franken-bits. So Franken-bits are most obvious when someone's doing a voiceover and other people are milling about on the screen or 
when like sometimes if there's two people talking there'll be one person you can see their face and the other person you can see the back of their head but even you're getting a reaction shot from the person whose face you can see but the person whose head you can see is doing the talking <laughs> most of the time there what happens very often is that they splice together audio to make you say what they want you to say of course so I remember this, it's, and it's really obvious once you start hearing it. I remember this happening because when they came to film my pre-interview uh, pre at my bakery, they wanted me to say some sort of sign off, like, you know, you know, I'm going to win because I'm fire or something yes. like that. Yeah. And I refused to do it because I thought it was really? so cheesy. It is cheesy. Like, I said, I hate this. I don't want to do it. This is not my personality. I'm not going to do it. So you know, seven months later, my, my episode airs and lo and behold, they have audio of me saying, this is like, I'm going to win because I think this is going to, or this is going to be a cakewalk, something like that. And I was just like, where did this come from? Oh, and man. then when I looked at it and I started listening to it, you can hear it. They literally spliced together my words in a way that make me say it's going to be a cakewalk. Uh. I didn't know it went that far, honestly. I, I had an idea. My wife and I were watching her like, this doesn't seem like the reaction you think it would be. Or like, why would they, why do they all say these really cheesy lines? And, uh, but that they're splicing words together. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah, it happens. It happens one, because they do the Franken bit. So they spice, yeah. words, splice words together. It also happens because people just get to the point where they just want to go home. They're just tired. Oh, and okay. the producer, like, they don't feed you words in the sense like, here's a script, read it out loud, but they might say, they might reword what you say. Like if you kind of, you know, jumble your sentence and they say, so you're saying that the other competitor was kind of jerked you, right? And the guy, and then you might say, well, yeah. And then they say, can you say that again? Like you say he's a jerk. And then you would say, well, the other competitor is kind of a jerk. And then that's what ends in. So it's not like outright script, but it's, it's tactical manipulation. Yeah. So you have to be aware of that if you're a competitor on these shows, because I mean, you're, you can buy into it if you want and, you know, play the game, or you can be really mindful and careful and not do that. Um, and I, it, that's, and if you're really tired, you've been there for 10 hours, you yeah. lost, God, you just want to go home. You just want to get it over with. Right. Right. Man, TV, you know, I mean, that's, incredible you know kind of behind the curtain stuff what was the relationship mm -hmm. with the other competitors do you get friendly with them or is that also very kind of transactional yeah uh we were very lucky which i think i realized just in the moment uh and then that was confirmed later on by you know pas who had been there for a long time but everyone in my group was just super super nice and friendly and yeah. you know we were competitive but in a kind, friendly way. It's just no one was a jerk to each other at all. Um, in fact, uh, Doug, the the guy I went to the last mm -hmm. round with, he actually helped me in the first round. It never actually made air, but he helped me. I, I, it was we had soft shell crabs in my first round, yeah. which I never worked with before, and he's from ba Baltimore. So he actually taught me how to clean crabs in the middle of the competition, <laughs> knowing yeah. that him like helping me might hurt him in the long run. And he didn't have to do that. It was just showed who he was as a person. And everyone on my on my team was just really, or on my uh, episode was really kind and ultimately just um, 
you know, great people. And I feel very lucky because I know that's not always the case. I'm watching it. Doesn't seem like it's always the case. You get some real uh, interesting people, should I say, (laughs) who are kind of confrontational on the show, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know how much of that's genuine or kind of, you know, built up behind in the interviews, but I I think that there's probably an element of truth for everything. I would imagine so. So what was there? Was there like a chopped effect for you after winning the show? Um, you know, I don't totally know because I, I filmed in June of mm. 2016 and it aired in February of 2017. By that point, I had actually been traveling internationally for six months. Yeah. So I watched Chopped at 2 a.m. in Portugal uh, <laughs> and wasn't around to see where, you know, like, I don't know the effect that it had on the business because yeah. I wasn't there at that point. My business partner had uh, she was operating at that point. So, um, I mean, like I saw a spike in Google analytics. So (laughs) the direct, the direct effect, uh, like within the first, let's say, you know, month, I was not around to see from a business standpoint. I mean, I definitely got more followers on online and all Uh that jazz, but for me, it's really been more of a long-term effect, a positive effect, because it's allowed me to uh, get into rooms or, you know, get into yeah. job interviews that I probably wouldn't have otherwise been in because it's a public thing and uh, people, people like it. So it's definitely net positive overall in, you know, forget the the money at the end. It's just, yeah, it, it helps with legitimacy for sure. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I want to dive into a little bit. I know this was one of the things when I saw in your profile about the whole kind of uh, issue of antidepressants and getting off, Mm -hmm. like really like dive into that. Let's start where that began for you and then kind of your mission with this whole deal. Yeah. So, you know, it actually ties in, ties into chopped quite a bit because um, the, the short story is that my father passed away when I was 15 and it was 2001. I was pretty quickly medicated with a cocktail of antidepressants. Uh, You know, it was pretty early in the, uh, in the medicating teenagers and children phase of, of, of psychiatric life. And so I, I was just put on them. I mean, at that point there was really no, as far as I know, I mean, like it just, it was just an op, it was a legitimate option. No one thought twice about the long-term effects or what that could do to a developing brain. And, uh, you know, I think too, at the end of the day, I, you know, I was, obviously not doing very well and nobody else knew what to do you know living in Reno Nevada wasn't exactly like a yeah forward-thinking metropolis it just kind of was what it was (laughs) so I uh, so I was put on these drugs and 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 the thing that tends to happen that I, I hear I hear these stories all the time is that there's there's always a lot of planning on how to start taking these drugs you know there's you know like how do we figure out what combination's right for you and you know, do you need to be on more of this one or less of this one? And there's a very kind of tactical, um, you know, approach to it where you're working with your doctors a lot. And then as soon as you find the combination that's right for you, it's like, okay, come back if there's a problem. And so the thing is for me, I didn't go back for 15 years because nobody, nobody indicated to me that 
at some point we were going to need to maybe reevaluate whether or not I needed to be on medication, whether or not the same medication I was on when I was 15 was the same medication I should be on when I was 25. Um, we didn't, no one ever asked if the drugs were working. If I needed a right. refill, the, I just called the doctor and he said, I need a refill. And they refilled another one with the pharmacy. And like, you know, I, I, I don't, I certainly don't like to put all, you know, and I do have to say doctors, not psychiatrists specifically, because I was under a GP's care most yeah. of the time here. So I don't want to like put everyone into the same bucket of negligence. But the bottom line is I just, you know, I lived in three different cities throughout this experience and had three different experiences with, with doctors who just did not ask, ask the second question, right? Like, okay, fine, we put you on them, but, but then what? Yeah. And it just, it just was nothing. And so I had no, you know, why should I be the one who has to be the expert on this, especially when I'm 15 years old to be able to think like, okay, maybe six months down the line, we need to reevaluate this. And then how are we going to safe, safely deprescribe? What happens yeah. there, right? None of that was in the conversation in 2001 at all. It's barely in the conversation in 2016 when I finally started to get off these drugs. And luckily now it really is starting to show up in the conversation to to a greater extent, I would say that they're still, um, in my opinion, still pretty backwards. And there's, you know, ironically, not so much a stigma on taking these drugs or ha struggling with mental health, but there is a struggle, there is a stigma against when you start talking about getting off these things and what can happen. People don't like to hear that at yep. all. So it's kind of interesting to see how we're moving along the path. But effectively what happened is I spent 15 years on these drugs and at about 30 years old, uh, this was maybe two or three months after I had applied for Chopped. It was after I had applied, but before I had been called back for a uh, on-camera interview. And I, you know, I was suicidal. I was really unhappy. Um, I basically was kind of. I looked at my life and said, either like I'm going to end this, or something drastic needs to change. And I started wondering, like where my baseline was like it just kind of occurred to me out of the blue like it was dropped into my head you know you're pretty damn depressed for someone who's on antidepressants yeah it was just this kind of like what what's wrong with this picture moment and so i said okay well before you do anything you can't take back you know what 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 if you try and get off these drugs and see what your baseline was at that point it was like well I probably need to be medicated, but clearly this setup isn't working. And because my only frame of reference for who I was as an unmedicated person was from when I was a child. And now that I was in my thirties, I kind of said like something, like the only way we can start over is to find a baseline. At the time, I didn't understand what that would mean, but that is what I went to do. And then at the same time, basically in the same week, I got accepted into a program uh, that had me travel around the world for a year. And I got the, and I got um, basically told that I was going to be on CHOP. So I had kind of all these things happen at once. Yeah. And what I realized was like, okay, well now I'm not going to be able to get off or to take these drugs around the world. Like I literally can't fit this many drugs in a backpack wow. or, or whatnot and trek them across the world. And I didn't think that I didn't trust being in a place like I, I was supposed to spend a month in Cambodia. I didn't trust being able to get my meds refilled there safely, knowing that I was getting what I was supposed to be getting. And I, so I kind of said, okay, um, I'm not going to be able to take all this with me. I was also by at this point having memory problems. And so I was just 
like my short-term memory was shot. And so I didn't want to travel around the world and forget it all. And so that was kind of what really pushed me to say, okay, it's time to get off these things and just see what happens. Um, so I did, I started to get off them. I started to go through a really severe with antidepressant withdrawal, mm -hmm. which is something that we should definitely talk about. But Most definitely. Uh, <laughs> what happened was, is that I was doing this at the same time that the whole chop thing was happening. And wow. it was just like, it was an absolute like disaster behind the scenes to the point where, I mean, I'm working with therapists trying to like get myself through it because I'm probably gonna have to open the door for my dog. It's okay. Coming in. Um, but what was happening is that like, I couldn't get through an hour without just having, you know, like these huge emotional meltdowns and I was having a lot of physical symptoms and I was really scared of going on national TV in a high pressure environment. And basically experiencing all these withdrawal symptoms in public it was already bad enough when I was in my apartment alone. Yeah. And so for me, getting through Chopped was a huge victory, not, not because I won, you know, that's great, but it wasn't because I won, but because it was really the first time that one, I had felt true joy in like 15 years from winning. And that was just a complete kind of, you know, uh, that was completely new to me because what happens with antidepressants is that they blunt both ends of your emotional spectrum. So you, you live much better in the center. And so the highs aren't as high and the lows aren't as low, uh, which is great if you're trying to kind of really avoid the low part, but you don't realize that there's this whole other spectrum. And after spending at that point, it had been, I think three, four months in really deep withdrawal where I was that, you know, that was worse than depression ever was, mm -hmm. I was starting to wonder, like, am I ever going to feel joy or <laughs> happiness or anything ever, ever? Like, is this even possible for me? And then winning Chopped and having that rush of endorphins from, you know, the release of pressure and the win, finally feeling all of that and realizing how much of the happiness joyful end of the spectrum I had not experienced and how much there was to experience for me that was just a huge push of motivation to keep pushing through because suddenly I understood what I could feel and that I wanted to live a life that gave me that opportunity to feel more of that every day instead of the other end yeah that's that's amazing I think also what resonated with me for you is I have a loved one that was on antidepressants for 15 plus years and mm -hmm. right around the same time 2016 same it's funny you mentioned that i was like oh gosh that was the same time period and this person uh started that withdrawal process around the same time that you did and mm -hmm. so i'm very much aware of what that looks like mm -hmm. and the severity of it and i don't think we talk enough about how, how severe the withdrawal effects are from antidepressants. I mean, it's not something you're supposed to be on that long. And no, there's literally you know, no studies of long-term antidepressant yeah. use, not a single one. No. You know, most, most clinical trials are, you know, a couple weeks, maybe maxing out at 12 weeks. There's not a single yeah. long-term study of how these drugs affect people, especially developing minds. And yet people are on them for decades, years, mm -hmm. and, and are scared to get off of them because of that withdrawal. And I think it's good to talk about that. Maybe dive a little bit deeper into what that withdrawal looks like. You mentioned it's almost worse than actually being depressed or having those feelings. Talk a little bit more about that. I think it's important. Yeah. So, you know, I have to clarify this by saying I'm not a doctor. This is not medical advice. Mm -hmm. This is all just my own 
my own personal experience and, you know, in, for informational purposes only. But, uh, you know, withdrawal looks different for different people based on um, a few factors. One is just we're all different. Our physiology is different. Mm -hmm. So it affects us all differently. The other thing has to do with the type of drug you're on. Uh, and the half-life is usually what we talk about a lot. So drugs with shorter half-lives leave the system faster. Yep. It means a half-life is that, you know, there's, there's, there's less of the drug in your body over time and it, and it goes away more quickly. So some drugs, for example, the one I was on Effexor, I believe the half-life is around 24 hours. Don't quote me on that. I think it's around mm -hmm. 24 hours. So um, it leaves quickly. Others maybe couple days, couple weeks. So it, it kind of titrates out of your system more slowly. And so drugs with uh, shorter half-lifes tend to have more intense side effects uh, when you're trying to cut down on the amount of that drug. Right. And what happens, and so one, people don't know that, right? I mean, yeah. God, I mean, I, I'm in this, I barely know the half-life of the own drug <laughs> right. I was on because, exactly. you know, people say different things. And so the average person is not expected to know this at all. Uh, the other thing that tends to happen is because uh, people don't, most doctors don't and patients don't understand how to safely de-prescribe and how to wean people off, they take them off way too fast and the body just can't handle it. The, the, the body and the brain just kind of loses, can I swear? Oh yeah, please go for it. Loses its shit. Like <laughs> sometimes quite literally. Um, every system in your body is affected by these drugs. It's not something that's just like affecting your mood. It affects your, I mean, for me, like what started to happen is first thing I noticed is my eyesight got better. I was walking mm. down the street and all of a sudden what you, what looked like little orbs of light, uh, sharpened into stars. And that's the mm. first moment I knew something had changed. My hearing changed. It got way more sensitive. I couldn't handle being around loud noises. Um, my skin changed. I for a long time could barely handle the wear clothes because my skin hurt. Uh, I started, I got, I developed something called nodular vasculitis, which is when the blood vessels are inflamed and I had all these bumps and bruises all over my body. I thought I also had like some terrible blood cancer or something on top of it. Mm -hmm. I didn't, but it was just, I, my physical skin was in pain. Um, taste changed too. All the senses, all the senses changed for me. And so that's just kind of discombobulating enough, but then you throw in the psychological side effects of it. So for, you know, a lot of people you are it's kind of like you're just balancing, you know, on a pin the whole time and you can so easily get knocked off. I mean, you know, I can go from being full of rage to sobbing to yeah. numb in a minute. Like it's bizarre to be in it and have it just overcome you with the smallest possible things. Um, and then I had a lot of also uh, not just emotional side effects but psychological side effects. I had uh, really terrible, violent, intrusive thoughts that I had mm. never had before and were terrifying. And so if like what happened for me is I, I, I got off my drugs one at, one at a time, but like three weeks into not taking, you know, my effects are, I'm having violent visions of hurting myself and other people. You think you're crazy. No wow. part of you thinks that this is the drug that's doing this, right? Yeah. What, what you think is that like, oh, well, if this is what I'm like without these drugs, imagine you know, like I need to be on them. And so you want to run your ass back to your psychiatrist right. and tell them what's going on. You tell them that they want to commit you for because they're afraid you're going to hurt yourself or somebody else. And you get pumped up with more drugs. This happens all the time with people when very often they are likely experiencing a withdrawal reaction, especially if you've been on these drugs for such a long period of time. 
Um, another thing that people very often experience, which I am very grateful not to have experienced, but it's called akathisia. There's a lot of, um, I mean, I just, I, my heart hurts so much for these people. It's basically like uncontrollable movement. So it's people mm. who like, you know, like restless leg syndrome, yeah. like feeling like you really want to move your legs. It's like that in your whole body, but doesn't go away and it can oh last goodness. for a really long period of time. And that to me, I mean, people are just, people are in so, so much pain over that. And uh, I'm, I'm really grateful that I didn't have that, but I do think it's important to know about that because it, I mean, it talk about a way to ruin your life. So, um, but the good news, there is good news here. The good news is that a lot of these side effects can be mitigated if only we understood how to take people off these drugs and you had a plan. So, you know, I am not the premier researcher on this. I am not, I am not a psychiatrist here, but the bottom line is that, you know, at least in the US, they recommend, you know, that they say that these withdrawal symptoms only last a couple of weeks and to taper off over a two week period, it's not long enough. Um, the, uh, the main thing that people in the know or kind of recommend right now is something called the Ashton manual. It was actually uh, developed by Heather Ashton for benzodiazepine withdrawal, but it, it's, it seems like it kind of transfers over pretty well. And it's basically means that you, you, you cannot cut by more than 10% of your current dose over a really long, slow period of time. And so it could mean that if you're on a high dose of these drugs, it could take you seven to 10 years to get off of them, but whatever. I mean, honestly, whatever, as opposed to putting yourself into the, you know, the act, the, this acute withdrawal that you also don't know how long that's going to last. I, I would trade taking it long-term every day. Yeah. I'm lucky that my symptoms took about a year and they went away, but it's not the case with everyone. And yeah. there are some people who, who kind of get off them. Okay. I mean, this is, you know, it's, it's something that you can't predict, you know, for every person who's been stuck in withdrawal for years, there might be someone who's like, I'm going to just stop taking them one day and I'm fine. Right. right? Like, right. Yeah. but we have, we cannot just like, we cannot look at just that end of the spectrum as the, con as the control, as the reality, because there are hundreds of thousands of people and you can find them on the internet where that's not the case. And so, yes, yeah. go slow, go slow. <laughs> you know, that's a good reminder for a lot of things in life. Right. <laughs> you know, go slow, take your time, Nothing happens quickly. And that's probably more common is taking your time, slowly tapering off and then and taking yeah. time to deal with the effects of that. I mean, there's so many analogies of that to just life in general, you know? Yeah. And I, I think that um, antidepressants and, you know, benzodiazepines too, I, I never had was on benzos, but um, at the end of the day, what we're doing with them is we're trying to blunt and emotional reaction. Yep. The issue with that is that if we're blunting our emotional reactions, and I don't want to call it a mental health reaction, because I think that implies a mental health disorder, yeah. which very often it is not right. I mean, people have taken antidepressants for far more benign things than having a severe mental Most health definitely. Uh, or mental, uh, mental disorder. So the bottom line is if we're blunting these emotional reactions all the time, and if we do it for a long period of time, like people do like for me decades, that was 15 years of not learning how to actually handle my emotions and how to experience them and how to deal with the traumas that 
led to these reactions in the first place, right? So what I hear all the time too is like people will tell me, okay, I've been on these drugs for a long time and I'm trying to get off them and I'm having all these, you know, uh, withdrawal symptoms and, you know, if I ask them, okay, well, like how, how is the emotional health? How are you dealing with this? Are you doing the work? They, they're like still refusing to deal with the reason why they were put on them in the first place. Right. But not only that, they don't understand that, okay, if you, you're taking away the armor here, you're taking away the cellophane you've been covered in. So guess what's going to happen? Everything's going to come up all at once. And because you have not been dealing with this in a more titrated manner, it's like getting into a hot tub after you've been rolling around in the snow, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's gonna, yeah. it comes so quickly and it's all at once and you're used to being cold and now you're suddenly really hot. You don't know how to deal with that level of emotion. And even like an appropriate level of emotion coming in is going to feel really overwhelming and big because you're not used to dealing with that. But so you, that, that part of it has to come along with this. I really don't believe that people can live a chemical-free life without doing significant amounts of deep work. I just, I don't think it happens. I think you're right. I think actually I just had someone else on my podcast and it was, it was, it was different, but similar. It's basically rituals and ceremonies. And like, if you expose yourself to like altering things in your life and it changes you, um, what's, what happens after you're exposed to this large thing? How do you integrate changes into Mm -hmm. your life? You can't just like change something and then go, I'm all good now. No, you know, you have to integrate into doing the work to get better. That sounds what you're, what you're saying, very similar thing. Yeah, it's a constant, it's a constant practice, but, you know, for me, it's more of like a, you, you can't, you can't run from pain. It will find you eventually. Correct. And it's, it's, it's a lot easier to deal with it when it happens than to run away from it because the timing's not right, or you're busy with work or all these other things, because it's just going to hit you like a freight train later on and it will compound later on. Then that's a guarantee. It's not a maybe. You might feel like you're getting away with something now, but I promise you're not. <laughs> it's going to come out one day, either in your body or your mind. Which is, again, another, I mean, you could say that about so many things in life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and whatever issues you have, if you don't actually confront it and deal with it, it's, it's not like it just goes away. You know, Mm-mm. it's like, oh, maybe for a little bit, but that rug keeps getting bigger and bigger. And it's that hill, that mountain gets huge. And eventually it comes, it bears that fruit. It's not good fruit either. <laughs> I mean, you know. No, and you get used to it too. You get yeah. used to that weight on you. So it's kind of like, you don't realize what you're carrying until yeah. one day you can't carry it anymore. And then you kind of look back and you're like, what the hell happened? Like, yeah. and then then there's there's an unraveling process that is that is very confusing because, yeah. you, know, I, you know, I've seen people who it's just like, it's so different and fascinating how, you know, some people kind of, it seems like they're taking on more and more over time. And you can kind of see that from the outside. There are yeah. other people who one day just, they just snap, right? Yeah, like yeah. one day their body's like, can't do it. And they fall apart and they're, they're just so caught off guard. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, our, our brains and our bodies are good at protecting us in that, in that way. So we have to kind of override that instinct because we don't, live in a society where we have to, you know, most of us are pretty sure we're going to live till tomorrow. So we have to think ahead a little bit more and, you know, try and deal with things as they come up. The the faster we process them, the faster we can move on, the healthier we're going to be. Otherwise, I think you just, you just see all these health problems, I think that are 
very much caused by the, all these emotional things that we don't deal with in addition to our you know, lifestyle and all that jazz. So where are you at today? Like what, what's the work that you've done to center yourself and be where you are right now? Well, I mean, I'm, I, I am still kind of baffled in some ways because I just like the gratitude hasn't gone away. And in some ways, I, I still can't believe that that's the case. Like, I, I live the life of people that I used to find probably so obnoxious when I was depressed, <laughs> because the last thing any depressed person wants to hear is like, oh, practice gratitude, right? It's just, yeah, yeah. right? You just want to punch that person in the face. And now that's like my day to day. And I'm still just kind of like, well, this is cool. So there is a change that can happen. But, you know, for me, it took about, I mean, I would say it took about two it took like one year of really, really intense, uh, intense kind of uh, counseling that was, that was constant. And, you know, I couldn't get out of it. It took about another year after that of a little bit, like maybe less regimented counseling, but still pretty regular. And then another year of uh, kind of, you know, situation-based regular counseling before I was able to say, okay, I think I'm in a place now where I can, I feel steady. I feel like I can really handle what's coming at me. I can process through it really well, have the tools. And, um, you know, I'm sure at some point in my life, I'll, you know, need more outside support, but now I feel like I can do it more on an as needed basis. Um, the, the type that I ultimately used was a practice called compassion key. And it's kind of more akin to kind of a spiritual, uh, counseling. I, it doesn't, it doesn't really fit into a bucket. It's not traditional yeah. talk therapy. I tried that didn't work for me. I am a very abstract thinker and what compassion key allowed me to do was a little bit more like hypnosis where it's not so much about the issue, you know, you think you have to deal with, but the way it feels to you and all the things yeah. like the, the symbols and whatnot around it. So for me, it was really powerful because I was able to take you know, like when you're, when you have a trauma, like I did and I was 15, it seems like really obvious to just dive into that. But I really don't think, you know, yeah, that caused some issues for sure. But there was a lot of other things that really actually led to some of my bigger problems, I think, um, yeah. that I think may have been overlooked in traditional counseling because we just would have wanted to noodle around in the obvious one. Sure. Um, I'm also very interested in the idea of epigenetics and inner intergenerational trauma and ancestral trauma and how that comes out in in our day-to-day -day life so I compassion key allowed me to do work on that that maybe you know maybe it wasn't all about me maybe it was the things that I carry and how they're mm. manifesting in me and you know I'm not saying that that's the right answer for everyone I think there are a thousand different paths to the same destination and that everybody needs to find what works for them but that if you go to therapy twice and don't think it works for you, that's, that's not enough. Keep looking. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, you would really like this last guest I just had on Dr. <laughs> Catherine Coder. She's a transpersonal oh, cool. psychologist. Yes. Man, yeah. she's amazing. And everything you're saying, I'm like, yep. oh gosh, she's, these two need to meet each other. Like this. Oh, I like, would love that. Yeah. I got to introduce both of you. I think like there's a lot of synergy there. Mm -hmm. um, I love connecting people. I just think it's beautiful mm -hmm. to get people together who, you know, maybe able to help each other. I think it's a yeah. wonderful thing. So yeah, I'd love, I'd love to meet her. I don't know. I really gravitate towards things like I really like the holistic 
mm-hmm. approach like i'm all for western medicine you know who's if i break sure. my arm please take me to a hospital please <laughs> yeah <laughs> but uh i i think that we've really as a culture shifted away from you know kind of our instinctive ability to heal like yeah. our bodies our body's main state is in a, is one of healing right and you know i i love science i love research but the job of research is to find answers to small questions and then you know keep keep doing that it's not it's not its job to answer really big questions and i think we've kind of lost like the fact that we have spirit spirituality even if mm-hmm. it's not in a god energy we are connected to this earth we are connected to each other we all know what it like feels like to be surrounded by good people and not so great yeah. people and there's there's many ways to communicate in which we view our world that tends to get cut off i think with a lot of western medicine especially in psychiatric and psychological care and i just think that's such a disservice because we are more complicated than just you know yeah we have we have a brain filled with chemicals Mm -hmm. but there's nothing in me that says that that's the only answer it's deeper than that though it's deeper than that you know yeah i just and i and i feel like i know that and so when I approach my own healing through that lens, it goes much faster than if I just, you know, <laughs> I'm trying to do it from a purely biological standpoint. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, I resonate with that completely. And I think a lot of people are going to resonate uh, with this discussion. It was the reason why I reached out because I feel like, you know, obviously it's fun, you know, talking about chopped and stuff like that and cooking, yeah. but like the antidepressant one, I mean, there's so many people going through that. Mm-hmm. It's close to home for me obviously for you. And so I think it's a necessary thing to put out there. So thank you for being on and talking. You're welcome. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Yeah. And um, you sound like you're doing awesome things. You're healing (laughs) well. And uh, I'm just grateful that you gave me some time to, you know, talk to you about this. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, I am really excited. I literally yesterday signed a book deal on my story. So, and I, um, that actually will be coming out in uh, spring of 2022 because the it's already well written and edited and all that yeah. jazz. So, so there is more to come with that, and I'm just excited to be able to hopefully get this story out to more people in a more digestible way. That's amazing. So, That's breaking news on here. I mean, it is breaking, breaking news. news. <laughs> breaking news. Breaking news, Brooke. That's what I you did. I announced that on my Instagram. Yet. Boom! <laughs> right here. <laughs> Oh man, thank you so much, Brooke. And uh, I look forward to staying in touch. I love staying in touch with everybody's on the show. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Darian. Really appreciate it. Got it. Ready for the interview, and if you get a cue live on a laptop, watch what I'm gonna do. Welcome to the show, let them know we got a point of view. Hey, yo, let's have a combo. Say what you feel, be real, that's the motto. Real talk, pronto, doctor, DPHD, hit the intro. Hold up, wait, gotta be social, network, global, a home for the locals. Gotta be social, network, global, a home for the locals.